Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is about Tigers Are Not Afraid, directed and written by Isa Lopez. Some relevant trigger warnings for this movie include child endangerment and gun violence, and our hosts rank this movie as scary. If you'd like to learn more about the movie, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes and a transcript. After the spooky music, we'll talk about the movie in full, so be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Now let's get on to the show. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the Mexican crime drama slash political drama slash horror movie, Tigers Are Not Afraid. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cenobites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I'm torn because... I'm increasingly not sure if child actors are an ethical thing to exist, but these kids keep fucking putting in amazing performances. Yeah, no, no Anakin Skywalkers, these guys. Like, awesome performances across the board. Like, I know I've been pretty harsh and down on the, the movies for the last few weeks. I'm into Tigers Are Not Afraid. This is a very good movie. Yeah. And also the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, our co-host, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm wondering where I can get an OtterBox with an animated flying dragon. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah, like, we're, hook me up. <laughs> Anybody at Twitter and Megamoth on Twitter, I, as long as there's no human trafficking involved, that's a oh, deal breaker. Okay. Yeah. And our guest tonight. By day, she's a government accountant. By night, she's a comics and sci-fi fan. And one of the patrons of the image that caused Mr. Claremont 30 points of psychic damage. It's Eugenia Pinzon. Eugenio, welcome. Thank you. I can't believe I saw the film Turkey Upslampis doing crimes. <laughs> I did not realize that until like five minutes ago that Namor is our child murdering human trafficker slash political candidate. Absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's, it's a lot. He's really getting it in. I mean, Namor, I think, is not above murdering a child here and there, but it's not really like his thing. You know, if he happens to flood a city and, and murder children. That's fine. But. Zack Snyder's Namor is killing children by the boatload. Before we jump into our full discussion of the movie, we're going to do a quick recap. Emily drew the short straw tonight, so Emily, uh, give it a shot. All right, I'm taking it away. So we're going to start with some stats here. The The director and writer is Isa Lopez. It's starring Paula Lara, Juan Ramon Lopez, Neri Arredondo, Hansel Casillas, uh, Rodrigo Cortes, Yanis Coverrero, and Tino Huerta. I hope I did the, those pronunciations well. I tried my best. The film begins with a little bit of context. It explains that among all the stats of the deaths and disappearances resulting from the Mexican drug war in 2006, there are no numbers representing the orphaned children as a result of all of the deaths and disappearances. And now our story begins. We have Estrella. She is an elementary school student in an unnamed Mexican city in the midst of a drug war. Uh, as a shooting interrupts her lesson on writing composition, or she is telling a story about a prince wanting to become a tiger, her teacher consoles her by giving her three pieces of chalk, calling them three wishes. Classes are canceled for the day, so Estrella goes home to find an empty house. Empty except for the ominous blood streak that runs along the floored walls, pretending death, I guess. Estrella still hunkers down, despite the spooky blood, 
uh, waiting for her mom to come home. Meanwhile, Elshina, the tough orphan, steals a gun and a phone from a drunken gang member, Kako. Shine almost shoots Kako with the gun, but doesn't, because he's an artist, not a killer. Estrella proves why the genie from Aladdin deliberately chooses not to bring people back from the dead. Estrella makes her first wish to bring her mom back, but mom's dead, and now Estrella is haunted AF. Estrella leaves the house, terrified of her mom's horrible shrink-wrapped ghost, and returns to find Shine looting her place. Estrella follows Shine to his crib, quote-unquote, which is basically a Lost Boys fort on the top of a roof. Several roofs, in fact. And we are introduced to Shine and his gang, which includes Pop, the big softie, Tusi, the scrappy storyteller, and Moro, who is the youngest. Shine is the leader because he is tough and he swears a lot. He tells a story about a tiger that has escaped from a drug lord's estate after he was killed by the rival gang. Tiger now stalks the streets and eats little kids. Ooh. Estrella wants to join their crew, and they try to deter her in the most adorable way possible. Then Moro offers her an animal cracker because she's alone and hungry. It's a very effective deterrence. It isn't. It's really cute. Despite leaving the house, Estrella is still haunted as fuck, and Kako, the owner of the phone, soon arrives to retrieve his stolen goods. The kids cheese it, but lose Moro. Shine blames Estrella for Kako following them and losing Moro. Tuxi and Pop explain that the gang, the Huascas, are human traffickers and practice satanic virtuals and will eat Moro if they don't save him. Estrella offers to destroy the gang for their wish chalk, but Shine is like, no, just shoot him. Here's the gun. There's his house. Go do it. Uh, at first, Estrella's like, F that S, but they guilt trip her into it. So she walks into his house. Kako's already dead in front of an ep- exposition news report that claims that this up and coming politician Servando Esparza is also Chino, the leader of the gang, the Huascas. She runs off, and the gun somehow frees a metal snake that emblazoned the handle of it. What does this mean? It's a mystery. Moro and the other kids are saved. Two other kids, in fact. They belong to a different gang, but everyone still celebrates. Well, Sheen doesn't celebrate. Shine, excuse me. Well, Shine doesn't celebrate. Let me try that one more time. Shine doesn't celebrate. Yeah, you got it. Thanks. <laughs> Shine <laughs> never celebrates. He never celebrates because he's mad that Estrella bested him. After the festivities on the cool rooftop crib, Shine tells Estrella about how each of the boys lost their families. Later that night, the haunting intensifies as Estrella's mother warns her through an empty cup of noodle that the gang is coming after them and they need to hide somewhere else. She's also full of weird, portentous phrases like bring him to us where we are typical ghost stuff the kids leave the next day to find a new crib somewhat like watership down but more sad like watership down but more sad that's yes box yeah on the way they uh, return the rescued kids to their brother who's part of the gang of older kids run by some older jock named brian and he has some kind of deal with the huascas And uh, even though he has given up on these brothers, Shine has bested him. And he's like, Estrella killed Kako. Ha 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 ha. And Ryan is like, that's fucked up. They're going to get you. We set a piano on fire. Kind of insensitive because Shine's parents were killed by fire. But anyway. That had to have been a piano that they already had and someone wanted to get rid of. Because otherwise, I refuse that any budget approved like, yep, just a burning piano. 
I mean, give us money to buy or build a piano that we can then explicitly set on fire. I have some art school critique symbolism commentary about the piano. Anyway, Shine's gang find an old magical school building that's full of fish and soccer balls and arts and crafts. And they play soccer and pretend to be Eurovision. And it's really cool. And there's like the fish in the floor. It's red. It's like the Lord of the Rings house, as they say. However, the secret scary blood trail is still after Estrella. Uh, she tries to run away from it. It's hard because it's spooky ghost blood, but the chalk does protect her. The chalk that is, in fact, her final wish. She finds Shine still has Kako's phone because it has the only picture that he has left of his mother, who was trafficked by Kako. They get a call on the phone. Brian has ratted them out, and now they know that Estrella has killed Kako. Estrella and Shine bond over his life story. He asks her to use her wishes to make his burn scar, go, burn scar go away, but she refuses because she's pretty convinced her wishes are cursed. For good reason, I guess. I mean, I don't blame her. Shine returns to Estrella's house to retrieve photos of her mother, but he gets caught by the Huascas, and they force him to rat out the rest of the gang. They show up to retrieve the phone from Estrella. She is almost completely bested. However, the uh, bad guy is shot by Moro, who still has Kako's gun. And Moro, sweet little Moro and his tiger plush, are shot dead by this guy. You can cry for a few minutes. I did I have did. in my notes at that, oh, look, the too pure for this sinful Earth character was too pure for this sinful Earth. Yeah. In my case, it was a simple, no, Moro, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it happened super fast. Shine shows up and shanks the leg of the bad guy. He lets Estrella go. Everyone gets away. Moro is still dead. They, they carry his body with them. They carry, they take his body and his plush. And they inter him for the moment in a tower. I don't know where the tower is, if it's still in the uh, this school, but it's, I'm not sure if that's like an institute. It's a pretty weird uh, building. I never yeah. understand where things are. It's very, very I don't cool want to say window. magical. Yeah, it's a cool window. It's very lyrical, I should say, because it's hard to say something is very magical when there's a dead little boy who is, in fact, too good for this world, I guess. I mean, there's lots of magical movies with dead little kids. Not Macaulay Culkin with the bee stings. I think that's what Bridge to Terabithia is about. Did they straight I up? I never saw on? that one Jumanji movie where they were in space, but I assume a kid probably died in that. I mean, this is like full on innocent child's body. Shine thinks that the reason that the Huascas are after them is because the phone must have incriminating evidence on it. And he's right, because there is, in fact, a video of Chino, who is also this uh, politician, killing a victim. Chino calls them. And they decide to make a deal to return the phone and Chino should make all of the Huascas disappear. That's their deal. Here's a phone. Get rid of your gang. Meanwhile, the dragon that was on the phone flies away. Chino reveals that he killed Kako, not Estrella. And now everyone thinks that Estrella is a liar. And they abandon her with Moro's body saying, you got to stay here with the dead kid. We're going to go and cry. That's fair. Estrella's just hanging out with Moro's ghost and her mom's ghost shows up and every other ghost in the world shows up and she is freaked the fuck out. She leaves. Let's, uh, let's not forget about the living plush tiger that um, it starts 
giving her things and indicating where to go. Oh, yeah, I was getting to that. Like, once Mora's spirit is free, the tiger is now animated. It makes cute little cat sounds, too, which is just, it's like, it's so a tearjerker for sure. <laughs> Meanwhile, Pop and Tuxie are trying to convince Shine to give the phone to the police. Shine is like, what good have, <laughs> what good have the cops ever done? And Pop and Tuxie are like, uh, and uh, Shine is correct. They show the, the cops the phone and they're like, look at this phone with this incriminating. Here's the drug lord. And the cops are like, F that is. And they literally drive away. Yeah, the cop literally says, you see who this is? We're leaving. Yeah. And it's like horror cops said to 11 like all horror movie cops are useless these cops are extra useless yeah these cops are like we're not even in this movie i've gotta be honest these cops did slightly better than i was hoping because i thought they were gonna show up and it was immediately gonna be like oh the evidence from the person we're also corrupt and taking money from so the fact that they just like ran away instead of being like yoink we are kidnapping you to take you to the like the big bad boss i was like okay at least you're just cowardly and not actively evil they're probably not paid enough i don't know if it's good or bad that the cat is bilingual it's the same here than in the united states i did notice that because there was also some some interesting like terminology that was like shine is the kid's name we, we, he would be called shine and he would be called shine I think sometimes they say his name like Shine. It's actually, it's an interesting thing because it's how a kid or someone who isn't familiar with English would understand the word. For example, Brian, it's a, it's the name you get here in the, instead of Brian, uh, B-R-I-A-N. I-A-N, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the Mexican character is B-R-A-Y-A-N. And it's how people hear it. And so, oh, it's a cool name. Let's call our kid Brian. Yeah. How it's written. I don't know. It's way. It's how it sounds. I did have, and this may be too much. This may be dark, but I did have a very dark note, like right off the bat, which right when there's like gunfire in the classroom, around the classroom, and they all duck down on the floor, I wrote in my notes, oh, so it's not just America where this happened it's so, always terrifying and disturbing to see that like is one of the most terrifying things it's just so real there's a lot of stuff that's very real about this movie where you know like i don't mind that there's a snake coming off of the gun because at least like, oh there's something off, magic the snake coming off a gun or a phone case is not what makes this movie a horror movie what makes this movie a horror movie is that this is very much a hell is real and the devils are us yeah yeah yeah. Shine discovers from the video that the woman in the video that is being killed by Chino is, in fact, Estrella's mom. He, he noticed this. There's a picture he stole because both yeah. the, the bracelet we keep seeing that Estrella wanted of her mom's, which is a, a bunch of birds. Yeah. So the bird bracelet is, is now I forgot the word. Important. Significant. The, the, bird bla- the bird bracelet is significant. Would you say the bird is the word? No. <clears throat> that was <laughs> terrible. I- <laughs> I should apologize, but I won't. The kids return to gather Morro's body and bury it. Estrella is haunted by Morro, and he leads her to where they are burying, interring him for real this time. It is a burial at sea. 
although I'm not sure if it is a culvert or cistern, but it is water and it is sad. They all convene to meet Chino at the uh, appointed location, which is some kind of abandoned bathhouse. It's a cool location, but apparently it's also Chino's favorite place to kill people, which it's surprising that these kids agree. That's a real food setting up a meeting spot that's right by where you already are. It's like, where do you want to meet? How about across the street from me? This is where things get interesting. So they uh, they catch the bus in war paint, uh, just to see and uh, pop. They've got magic marker on their face, like you're in the Warriors or something. And then they finally get to the old abandoned spa. Chino at least keeps his word. They do the trade-off, and Chino kills his flunkies right in front of them after getting the phone and lets the kids go. But you know what? It ain't that simple, folks. This spa... Because it is the place where all the people were killed, it's also where all the bodies are. And also, Shine switched the phones, so they didn't actually do the trade-off. They're running from uh, Chino, and finally, Shine breaks the big news to Estrella that the uh, woman on the video was her mother. This changes stakes a little bit. Now, at this point, Tuxi and Pop, smartly, have completely abandoned ship and no one blames them for that because they're done they actually identify the location from the video this is where the bomb has been urging them to bring yes the bad guy yes estrella decides that she's going to use her final wish to wish away shine's scar now that they're down to brass tacks um after shine tells her that uh wishes don't exist and neither do tigers all of this is just fairy tales which, it's just them and horrible, horrible shit. Yeah. For the record, tigers exist. Tigers if you and foxes. This movie not knowing if tigers or foxes exist, they do. Yeah. How long? Who can say? But so long as we've got the Joe Exotics of the world who just keep making, like, making more as pets for crazy people. Ugh, just threw up in my mouth a little. Anyway, so the wish does come true. But it's because Shine gets shot in the face. It's really horrible, and we're going to cry. But first, Estrella runs and is led by the tiger plush into the body pit. And there, she finally meets her mom. It's, it's actually a really, really like sad, heart-wrenching scene where his mom is trying to like cover her rotted face with the plastic. But there, they share a final moment of farewell. So Estrella gets her bracelet, as was promised by her mother, the I do birds. also like that when she's following the tiger plush, tiger plush straight up hands her the a lighter that she's going to need momentarily. Shine's lighter. Yes. Shine had a lighter that was the lighter that was used to burn his house down. The tiger has given her the lighter and she leaves, luring Chino into the room full of corpses, locking him in. On the way out, she gives the lighter back to the ghost of Shine. And Shine sets the place on fire. The corpses have gained their vengeance. He has been returned to them, as was foretold by the spooky ghost. And Estrella sees the tiger. It is real. It's probably the the most real thing that she sees, other than, you know, the death and the kids and the murder and stuff. And, And whether this is the tiger from the story... Whether it is a real tiger, it does not attack her or eat her, but she is uh, inspired by this. And she leaves this spa building, these, this bathhouse, and walks into a field, which I think 
is not a metaphor for death. Yeah, we have I, reason I, to believe not, that she's been injured. I'm, I'm also pretty sure it's the same tiger from Life of Pi. I thought that tiger was entirely CG, I believe. This tiger. I mean, na- I mean narratively, it and... takes place in the same universe. Same tiger, <laughs> same narrative, yeah. same character reprising his role. I think it, like, it was, long it was interesting MCU. to me, like good choice from a directorial point of view that like Estrella sees this tiger. The actress is never anywhere close to it. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah, like, like call. stops and sees something. And then there's a completely separate shot of a tiger. And then she is awed by the sight of the tiger and goes the other direction. There are definitely some directors we've covered who absolutely would have put a child in front of a tiger. Yeah, have you ever seen Kroll? This, though, I think there was a a shot, like a reverse shot of the tiger walking towards her and then back. Yeah, it's just a shot of the tiger, though. Okay. Australia is nowhere in that shot. Okay. (laughs) So uh, that's the movie. It's It's a a good movie. It's real intense. The second... Australia is like, I wish to remove this, like, for the scar to leave your face. I'm like, oh, no, don't say it like that. Yeah. You got to be real careful. I'm like, man, now, like, his whole, like, a grenade's going to fall out of the sky and his whole fucking face is going to blow off his head. And I'll be <laughs> like, ah, look, the scar is gone. The burn's gone. He's gone. And so is the scar. I'm like, um, as soon as she did, like, did that, I'm like, oh, no, shine. Like, the no was out of my mouth, like, a millisecond before the bullet hit the cheek. Yeah, they're on some real, like, wishmaster logic on these three wishes. Like, oh, yeah, these wishes it's all are, bad. Yeah. yeah. This is some real, like, this teacher just giving her some real fucking monkey paw chalk. Is it that knowledge, I say as a teacher, but... That's some book of Genesis shit you're getting into now. So, I wanted to mention the school shooting scene, because... Yes, that is rough. Nice um, way to start off a movie. Yeah. yeah, that was really just letting you know exactly what kind of tone you're in for. In this situation, the shooters the shooters aren't necessarily after the kids. It's still a terribly traumatizing situation. But I was thinking about that. Like the shooters were shooting at a classroom, and there were bullet holes all over the side of the classroom. And there's probably a lot more guns involved but it was was, i just thought about a contrast between the drug war shootings or like drive-by shootings in this case and school shooters when i was growing up in the 90s when there was like war on drugs and stuff like that there was a lot of paranoia about like drive-by shootings and there's they do happen but we didn't ever hear enough about them we always heard more about school shootings so that was an interesting, like, I don't know. It just brought that up to me, that scene. Also, you can tell that a lot of these kids have been through this, especially since you have, like, a group of kids on the street just playing because school's out. This guy's been shot, and his body is bleeding out under, under a, a blanket. Yeah. All right. Now, I know this is going to further expose me as the token psychopath of the podcast, but did anyone else see that scene and think to themselves, what a waste of a good rug? It was a nice rug, but I think that I th- that rug had been, it's seen its, its time. I guess if you shot the guy first and the blood already got on the rug, then it's in for a penny, in for a pound. You're not getting that stain out. But if you're like, hey, we just got to throw something on this guy. Quick, get me that nice rug. You really tied the room together. Yeah, it, t- <laughs> it tied the sidewalk together. Probably 
they are the police already spent their budget, so <laughs> we don't have enough uh, something to cover. There's something in the house. Yes, there's a rough. How about that detail of the little kids playing limbo using the police caution tape? It's a very DIY situation, and that was something else that I wanted to mention about the piano thing. Is that I haven't seen a piano that on fire since the Philadelphia Phillies won the World Series. <laughs> That's well, a true story. There's an interesting a goddamn grand piano in the middle of the fucking street on fire. A bus was overturned and I saw three men steal a tree. That's what? That's the Philadelphia story. That's what that movie yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Is that that's the, the, the Philly we, you know and love? Isn't didn't they have an experiment about that? <laughs> what's what's striking to me is how um matter of fact death and losing people is in this movie. Yes. Um that like Moro gets kidnapped and they're like, fuck it. Like we lost him. That's it. That's it for Moro. Like that they've all sort of accepted that their parents are dead, that you know, other than Estrella, there's not a lot of ceremony about it. You know, we, we find out what happened to most of their parents later on through Shine's telling of it. But like the body in the street, as you know, covered up by the rug, is like it's just a split second thing. It's like, oh, she's walking down the street. Oh, there's a dead body there. Gotta go the other way. You know, and it's so like, you think that shows up on the Waze app, like you load up on Waze and it's like, you, you, you like at least cross the street. I mean, that in Philadelphia, I'm sure. The you know, piano I, certainly I, shows up on the Waze app. Yeah. I don't know. It, it was really interesting to me because I think we see so many movies that linger so long on the violence and the violence is sort of matter of fact in this. It's the fantasy that's really frightening to it, them and to, to her, especially uh, you know, something... the, the stuff with her mom coming mm-hmm. back and the the ghost of her mom is easily the scariest thing in this movie other than you know the the few big moments where something horrible <laughs> happens the ability for human beings to adapt especially for children to adapt is both inspiring and horrifying because that's the thing like this movie is not just unrelenting suffering and sadness and terrible there are moments like where this movie very poignantly focuses on wonder and joy like when they see like the koi pond dancing to a music video on the tv discovering the soccer balls like these kids will go through horrible things but then in a second they will be back to being just children like happy to be playing and this concert reminded that like these are not tiny adults these are children like it is endlessly heartbreaking the thing that i kind of failed to really highlight in my recap because this movie is complicated was that whole running theme of the fairy tale of the prince and the tiger by the way it starts with tigers don't forget i'm like that's elephants tigers don't forget either let's test it scientists tell me how tigers memories are they they do love pumpkins they have a love pumpkin an ancestral memory with i was honestly expecting like like them to be trapped and then like an actual tiger comes out of nowhere and mauls someone they're like oh shit tiger was real i I think it's interesting to me that australia seems to be the only one that's seeing all the fairy tale stuff like the fairy tale is all all her thing arguably in her head it's difficult well, to tell the way it presents it the movie does give credence that it's all real when one scene where australia only knows where the other kids are because moro's ghost tells her 
Yeah, or that she knows where the bodies are because a combination of her mother and the plush tiger tell her. Yeah, maybe she has just really good instincts or maybe she's got visions. Okay, uh, we need to know what's up with this teacher. What kind of fucking shock was that? That's the thing, is that the shock was cursed. Like, the wishes came with consequences. And I think that's more of a commentary about power because you can't just make these things happen without a consequence. Whereas Shine has his idea that there's no such thing as what as wishes or tigers or or anything tigers are real but i mean there's no such thing as the tigers that they're talking about the tigers that aren't afraid in his world tigers are tigers and they're just an animal even though earlier he was talking about how the tiger is the king of his own broken kingdom and the beginning of the film the story that estrella was telling was about a prince who couldn't become a tiger because he forgot to be a prince and i feel like that is sort of a reference to the fact that he had forgotten to be a kid and he couldn't become anything more if he did if he lost that hope i think that's one thing that is being said with that story and also so i was bringing this up with a piano because it really really indirectly led me to another thing about shine is that he is an artist and their little crib, their like rooftop fort was full of like weird sculptures and uh, Shine had his like characters drawn everywhere. I love the graffiti. Yeah. Like, after Moro dies and he does the new and like, like that's his way of mourning. Like this is a kid who is so clearly has so many emotions that he feels he has to bottle up to be the tough guy leader. And God, between Brian and and um, Namor gives us so many examples of where that could potentially take him. Like there are foils and it's only through his art and these brief moments that only Estrella sees that just shows like he is just this well of vulnerability and sadness and hurt. And yeah, he, he's he's doing his best. It uh, seems like to be tough for his boys, you know. I get but, crazy how good Juan Ramon Lopez is. Like, yeah, both he amazing. and Paula Laura are so good. Like, yeah. all these kids are good. The two of them are amazing because I think so much of of Juan Ramon Lopez's role as Shine involves not talking, well, not saying things, and you getting stuff from his facial expression and the way he carries himself and things like that it's he's so good right i think what's interesting to me is like we get all these interactions with fairy tale and this has a very like peter pan sort of feeling to it you know we have this character in Australia who is sort of the wendy who's the one girl that's coming into this group of lost boys and i think the movie like plays around with the fairy tale stuff and the fantasy stuff and it, it you know very much want you to see and believe all of that stuff and for her to see and believe all of that stuff. But at the same time, it makes no bones about the fact that like uh, these heroes, these kids that go through these things, they don't make it out. Like it's very rare that anybody survives this. It's not a happy ending story. Even, you know, Estrella does actually make it out, but you know, what is out there for her at this point? Her mom is dead and who knows what comes next for her. It's just survival is the closest thing to a win she gets. It's very haunting and painful seeing her go through the process of just coming home from school and her mom isn't there mm-hmm. waiting and the mom doesn't come home, doesn't answer the phone. And you just see this little girl have to go through 
the process of wondering how long does she wait, holding out hope, having to face that truth, and eventually just having to be like, okay, and just having to face that in a split second, she has gone from someone with a home and a mother to an orphan just scraping by on the street and just, know, just very emotionally powerful. Well, one of the themes and one of the saddest part of the movie for me is the loss of community and how the violence that the fight against drugs destroy the city, the families. Straight is completely alone. She doesn't have neighbors and godfathers, even uh, taking away the religious connotation of, of godfathers. Usually in Mexico, they are like a second father, like an uncle or aunts that help you in different situations. So seeing that she's completely alone in the world after her mother is gone is the saddest part. Uh, I think there is a part where you can see the neighbors fleeing away. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's when she decides to join Shine and the others. But, and that's the cutest part in the other, by the other hand, that uh, Shine, although he is very stern, he has the language of a pirate, he creates this little family and community that not only focuses on surviving, but like playing and trying to have a good time. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and yeah. I think that's part of what, what makes shine a character that, that you don't hate even like he is is very mean to Australia in the beginning he's not gonna allow her to join the group he makes her sleep outside and refuses for any of the the boys to like give her any food or blankets or anything he yells at Moro for eventually giving her an animal cracker but like he's doing it because he thinks that like her coming into this place is going to bring the gangsters it's going to bring the waskas and that's gonna get his little gang killed you well know, i do they, like... they always come after girls and i, I think w one thing i had a question about as we were watching this and i think it goes along with so much of the rest of the stuff in the movie is there's this conversation where uh they, they're talking about the virtuals the rituals that uh the guys have that maybe this the waskas are somehow semi-satanic uh, that they are sacrificing people to to the devil, and that guy uses you know six 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 as the code on his phone. Mm -hmm. um, it's unclear how much of them murdering people has to do with satanic rituals, and how much of it's just that they're a gang. But I think that goes very much in with the rest of the movie of not being sure what is a fairy tale and what's just harsh reality. I did like how, at least the way the boys presented it. Their feelings about girls was very similar to old-timey pirates about women on ships, where they're just like, women are like, women bring curses and bad spirits, so she they've can't got, stay. They've got crystals in their bodies that attract <laughs> demons, and the demons bring bad luck. As a woman, I can tell you this is true, but only when I'm on a boat. Like, I know so Shine was the actually thinking ahead and gaming out the situation, but I liked how the other boys were just like, we hear you, like, girls are cursed. Yeah, it, it was the least convincing deterrent I'd ever seen, at least from the rest of them. Like, Shine, certainly, he was, you know, swearing and, and saying a lot of slurs. After one night, Estrella is like, okay, I'm not going to beat you up. They're trying to make her prove herself. And there's a point where she's like, fuck this, I'm not going to go in and shoot the man. And she's like, you're the man, you do it. And then he, t he tells her, you have to become a man in order to join our club, which I thought was interesting. 
beyond the gender politics of that line, I'm so glad that that isn't really necessarily like our first kind of impression. Like, I'm glad that we don't meet Shine through Estrella's eyes. We meet Shine through the scene of him stealing the gun and having this opportunity to kill the person who took his mother and being unable to do so. Because then that is such an important touchstone that we, the audience, then have that paints all of his actions and feelings for the rest of it. Like like him forcing Estrella to be the one to kill the human trafficker reads so differently if we don't have that knowledge that he was unable to do it, that he was unable to do it himself and is torturing himself over it. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Again, this is a really good movie with really good characters yeah. and is written really well. I don't, I don't have snarky movie. shit to say about this movie. It's really good. The only thing that I'm snarky about is the fact that I'd just be really cool to have the dragon on my phone come to life and fly around. But I don't, again, I don't know if that comes with the satanic That would require Apple to make a new feature, and you know they're never going to do that shit again. Wish them, there's really a difference between Red Mass and Black Mass. I'm not familiar with the supernatural. I, I grew up Catholics, and I'm not sure how there is a difference or are the same. The satanic thing, the satanic thing that they're, they're like oh, the, the guy has the six 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 on his gun and he has a dragon and stuff like that. It's not like super satanic. I think it's more of like a macho thing, especially because it's you know there's a lot of people there who are Catholic and so he wants to be scary. I also know that there's, I remember hearing stories about a gang. I can't remember the details. I'd have to look it up. But there was there was there were stories about a gang in Mexico that was also kind of a cult, and they practiced a, a, this form of ritual that involved a cauldron. And I can't remember the name of it. Santa Muerte. Yes, I think it was Santa Muerte. Um, okay, uh, uh, Santa Muerte. It's the figure of, of the uh, a skeleton with like the. Imagine the Virgin Mary, but it's a uh, skull. It's a, uh, a skeleton, and with the side. And supposedly, there are people that uh, pray to to them. I'm not sure her. I'm not sure the the general. I do get power. And I think it's by the definition that maybe if I pray to death, they won't come for me soon. Something like that. I'm not sure. There are places here that you can see the figure where you buy some plants and aromatic candles. Oh, yes. I've heard about that. Actually, I, I looked it up and it's um, what they called Palo Mayombe, oh, which I think is closer to it's its own thing. Like a lot of very heavily Christian areas, you know, the, the um, iconography of demons and satan are usually picked up by these people who are criminals or trying to be badass or whatever just to to uh, intimidate other people i looked up the name the drug and human car trafficking cartel the huascas and i know that the name can mean whip also drunk and also penis <laughs> so actually try i think that is the temple in argentina i was trying there's not really a the word huasca in Mexico, apparently, but there is a place, it's a county, and according to this, there is a place called Huascas de Ocampo. The, the word Huascas comes from Huascas Loya, uh, from the Nahuatl language, that means place of joy. 
<laughs> so that's <laughs> wow. That is so, thank you. A dark name thank for a human for traffic. Yeah, that no, that is really good to know. And what an even darker than expected name for a human trafficking group. Though yeah. I gotta say, and again, maybe this explains, you know, that he's Namor, but I was surprised at first when El Chino's first reaction to getting the phone back seemed to be like, Well, a deal's a deal. I'm a man of my word. Time to murder my entire human trafficking operation. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, think... he's he's running for office. He's got to get rid of the. He's got to cut the weight there. Yeah, is in a completely separate, like, a long Good Friday gangster trying to go legit movie. And spoilers for every gangster tries to go legit story, it never fucking works ever. I do think, just like a lot of the stuff that happens to Estrella, we're only seeing the very, very surface of these complex drug cartel interactions and political intrigue and corruption and all this kind of stuff. Because, you know, like with the initial scene where she's supposed to shoot Kako, he's already dead, but she thinks that she killed him because a gun went off and she saw a gunshot wound. You know, I think in another way, Chino's killing of his attendants is essentially something that he was planning to do all along. And he, you know, wants to make it look to these kids like he's doing something that almost honors them to to have them let their guard down. I don't even know if he had any intent to kill the kids because they're kids. He's probably, he probably doesn't give a shit. And his actions and all of these characters' actions that are going on in this, this world of the Huascas are only seen through the filter of these kids who know the reality of life just beyond fairy tales. Like, they're newly disillusioned, if that. And, like, Moro is so traumatized that he can't speak, but he still favors his tiger toy. So there's, like, there's a commentary on perception and also, like, these kids struggling to still be kids and see things as kids and still have like that moral compass, like Pop and Tusi trying to give the phone to the cops, even though they know it's probably not going to do anything, but that's what the movie says the right thing to do. I did have a question actually also about imagery. I saw a lot of, and I didn't look this up, which I should have, but I'd rather ask everyone about it. I saw a lot of black ribbons over doorways. Yes. Yes. It's usually a sign. To put, to put a red, uh, black ribbon is that someone died on your family or someone in the house died. So it's a way, even in the WhatsApp, some people put that symbol to make note that someone close to you died. Okay. So we've seen a lot of black ribbons in the same small town. It's a bad thing. And I saw there were doorways that had like three or four of them over the door too that i knew that that was like significant but i just didn't know why thank you for for letting us know because it's really it's an important image in the film i was a little confused why he was so desperate to get the phone back given that it is in no way a secret that he is both running for office and a human trafficker like the news is just like noted human trafficker and murder person el chino (laughs) is running for office Still leading in the polls, none of the known murder and human trafficking slowing him down. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's like... It, what it's were the police going to do? Continue to not arrest him? We, after watching La Llorona, which is about this guy going on trial for genocide and then being convicted of genocide 
and then the conviction of genocide being overturned like that has to do with corruption yeah <laughs> like yeah i did uh, like i think how, that oh sorry i did like just how they handled uh, el chino from a world building standpoint how like they showed those campaign posters fucking like all around the environment where to the point where like this guy is kind of in like a very omnipresent force despite only appearing in the movie for like a couple scenes yeah i thought the telegraphing there was pretty successful like i thought that that was that was pretty smooth like they've had to make a life without their parents as a result of this drug war but all they understand is who's after them or who they can avoid to continue to survive so you know the, the kids don't really have much issue until chino is identified as their enemy number one and i think that also has to do with the fact that Estrella is so haunted because she runs from her ghost she has a lot more like she brokers a deal with the drug lord on a phone but runs in terror from the ghost of her mother because to her, the ghost of her mother is more real and more terrifying than everyday dealing with a corrupt adult. So, yeah, I think, you know, for, for most of the movie, she identifies the ghost as being her mom, but also she is not entirely willing to buy into the fact that her mother is dead because, you know, it, it is a weird ghost thing and she hasn't seen its face and, you know, she doesn't know what happened to her mother, which is in some ways more horrifying than like you know knowing that her mother is dead like she just doesn't know what happened to her yeah and then and this the ghost mom is real creepy like there's some definitely like some like skin growing moments when the, the like, hand reaches out of the like cup of noodles i was just gonna say when the hand comes out of the cup like maybe go like Ugh. and the, yeah. the like weird plastic and you can't really see and it, the plastic is really creepy to me because that is so real when you know like that's just in the corpse basement that is just like that is a horrifying on both a gore level and on that existentially terrifying level that like this is not a monster that committed this unfathomably nightmarish violence this was a human being who did this yeah this wasn't just one aberrant monster this is a group of human beings doing this on an organized systemic level is just oh it's just so much more disturbing than like a mon than like a monster in its own way i was and i was gonna say like i there's a lot of things I, i love about this movie i think it's really brilliantly made and it's it's the director isa lopez's third movie like she's only made two movies previous to this and they were both like comedies one is a musical comedy and this is like so well put together she wrote and directed it this is her first horror work and like everything about it is so tight and so well put together in a way that is rare to see from any director not to mention somebody who's relatively new to directing because she's got 10 credits in directing she's got a couple since this but like she came up like writing on telenovelas and stuff like that. So like this is a this is a very different kind of thing than that. It's so beautiful and horrible, like in this this combination. Oh, yeah. that this it feels like a fairy tale the whole time, even as the sort of gritty, horrible, realistic violence of it plays out. It yeah, like I 
I cannot say enough about about her. I think yeah, we would say uh, generally we talk about you know is is a movie feminist, and I do think this one scores some points there. But in particular, you know, it has a a female director who is incredibly good at her job. One of the most impressive things I don't know if you see I have seen some Mexican movies, but most of them have like a ton of how do you say this was made by the donation of Coca-Cola or, or this product enterprise product placement. Yes, thank you. This movie has none of them. None, not even in the credits, not in the movie. Uh, the only thing is a classic. This movie was made with the tax stimuli. Uh, there is a uh, enterprises can give some money, so some movies can be made. So that's the only thing, but nothing commercial. So have that freedom. It's so amazing, especially for a, a Mexican director. Um, so it's amazing. That would have been some weird product placement too, or been like, ah, Coca Cola, the official drink of drug war orphans. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they had cup and noodle, but I, they never actually were like cup and noodle. <laughs> I, no, mean, it's I would a really insist that cup and noodles is healthy for you yeah. if you uh, if you eat the peas. Yeah, eat the <laughs> green peas. It could have been like, look, we got Wilson brand soccer balls. That's what we're finding in the koi pot in the koi puddle mansion. Yeah, I think the closest they <laughs> that get was to that magical. is like I did they, they find the koi pond. I'm gonna say they point. They paint an actual like an actual football player's. Well, they poorly paint his number and his his name on the back of uh, Moro when they're getting ready to play soccer. And again, we have seen a very very artsy stop motion film that still had some weird product placement in it, like Pokemon and the Denver Broncos. Oh yeah. <laughs> God. I forgot that it was all the, very the distracting. The Denver Broncos jersey, especially. Yeah, uh, they, they give him the number fourteen. They give him the you know Chicharito jersey. Well, they try back. to give him number fourteen. I found it very adorable how it turned into number one claw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one Y. Yeah, you try to do those three D numbers, and you always mess those up as a kid. You know, you just should have put a Stussy like super S on there. Just <laughs> called it. They did try. I appreciated that, even though that Moro couldn't see it. They were honest, at least. Yeah, I guess, you know, going off of the the stuff about Issa Lopez, do you guys feel like this movie is feminist? Yeah, I do. Yes. Especially how there's a bit at the beginning with the memory that Estrella had with her mom, where she asked her mom if she was a princess and her mom was like, no, you're a warrior. And the prince and princess's metaphor didn't have anything to do with being helpless more so than it had to do with being innocent. At least that's how it seemed to me. The way that they're presenting it is, you know, we, we've forgotten that we were princes. It's, it's much more like we were princes rather than like princesses needing to be saved. Yeah. And like, I mean, I think Estrella is a great character and I don't know, I know it's not explicitly feminist, but just that its perspective is like, we want to tell the stories of like the children of victims of human trafficking, like just that level of we want to put give their perspective of the people affected by this. The movie feels compassionate on a very profound level, I think, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of these, a lot of movies like this, I think the tendency would be to 
have Shine be the main character. I mean, even a movie like City of God, which is, you know, based on real events, which is an incredible movie. All the women are sort of secondary in that story. And it's about sort of growing up with gangs and gangsters and everything. And I think this makes a really concerted effort to show this story and this life and everything through the the eyes of this young girl. And it never feels like she's not important. She's not in every scene. You know, they do shift perspective occasionally, but it's definitely her movie. Yeah. And she is the one who has the most agency in the movie by far. I mean, other like as much as any of the protagonists do, the kids are certainly relatively helpless against these drug cartels in real life. But we're also seeing this through the ideal lens of kids, including a strike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, following up on that, I don't think there's really any queer themes. There's no LGBTQIA stuff in here. There's really, I think, thankfully, no. they don't go for nothing. The, nothing. the romance between her and Shine, which I feel like a lot yeah. of these movies would do. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad there's no romance there. It's just allowed to be an incredibly emotionally complex of these two children navigating profound hurt and loss while also being so desperate for connection you know i do think again this is and again this isn't specific to feminism or queer issues i do think this movie's exploration of masculinity through shine is particularly interesting the way you can see how both like the people around him and the world and the circumstances he finds himself in is all very pushing himself towards trying to be this very aggressive unfeeling tough person but at the same time he is allowed to have this very he is allowed to both have and freely express this absolute like love and need for his friends and like they the at no point do these friends ever hide from each other how much they mean to each other and that they are allowed to have these this very openly loving friendship with still plenty of ribbing because they're little boys and that's yeah. going to happen. Well, there, there seems to be distinct amount of self-awareness when they depict the boys and their attempt at masculinity. Right. And it's not over the top. I mean, yeah, it gets a little bit over the top with shine, but comparative to something like, I don't know, like you think about hook and the Lost Boys, yeah, that's a movie for kids, but... That's why I think it's so important that we get that scene of Shine being unable to kill the trafficker at the beginning, because it tells us that every scene throughout the rest of this movie isn't, oh, this is who Shine is, he's this b aggressive, belligerent person, and that's who he is. This lets us know from the beginning that every scene afterwards is, oh, this is him trying to force himself to be a person we already know he is not. Yeah, yeah, that bit of context is really important. Yeah. Also, again, not related to the themes, but how about when they find that stage and their immediate thought is, let's play Mexico's Got Talent. Oh, my oh, God. The, the so rat hop bit has the, makes a you know helmet full of Christmas lights and is plugged in while he's trying to do a rap on the stage is just, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. Like that and then Morrow does the, like, line across the throat thing, like, <laughs> like, you might as well have had the big cane and pulled him off the stage. Like, this movie knew how to balance both 
joy and sorrow to make both emotions feel so real and hit so powerfully. The joyful yeah. moments were, again, the joy I felt watching these kids what like kick around soccer balls and the absolute just like sorrow at seeing them half of them also just be gunned down in front of us yeah the way they made joy devastating you know it's wonderful yeah <laughs> i mean that that's exactly it they made joy devastating because it's always reminds you of like this should just be their normal life this is just this should be the only thing on their mind is this play not surviving the cartel that's hunting them down yeah that's not a thing people their age should ever have to fathom and it's a heartbreak of the world that they do and that contrast is also present with the with brian's gang where they were destroying things and they they seemed a lot more like they would well, you know like have... a foil for these kids yeah. like, it was like this is what they would grow up into if they like are all still alive by like 16, 17, 18. Yeah. Or, you know, there's options that they have. Yeah. I think that ties, I think pretty closely in the topic of trauma and anxiety and everything in this, like it doesn't deal specifically with any, any sort of named mental illness in this other than the trauma that, you know, they're all dealing with and then is causing specifically Moro not to speak. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty, I feel like it's a pretty decent depiction of, trauma without it really like beating that drum too much these kids are traumatized every day is traumatic they're still dealing yeah and they're they're honest about it yeah like it's not like shine is a little bit self-conscious about his keeping the phone but mostly because he knows that the phone is a bit of a liability and he knows that the other kids kind of know that but they're also sensitive to him because they know that he, he has a reason to do so but they do communicate like he does tell Estrella what happened to everybody, and he is aware of his scar, and he's self-conscious about his scar. So it's not, and it doesn't take them that long. I mean, they have been through a lot together, but it doesn't take them a huge amount of time to really open up. It's not that, it's not that tough a nut to crack because they're not so broken, I guess. I mean, I don't know if that's the term that I really want to use, but like... Third, yes. I think the only moment we can see here trying to solve his fury, his anger, when Tai painting the soccer ball, and that one looked like Gakko, and he starts tapping the ball, like, Yes. Yes, he does. He, he oh, grabs right. the Gakko balloon, and, and then I think then he gives Estrella a new balloon, or not a balloon, but a ball. The one that with tigers. Yes. And they're like, oh, you drew kittens. And he's like, they're tigers <laughs> for protection. Which, I mean, he was painting tigers for a while as well. Like before that. He was painting That's what tigers. I'm saying. This kid should be just be like fucking like just drawing tigers on a skateboard and in school drawing Goku's in a notebook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like even not even Goku. Like he, he has his own style. And his mural of them saying goodbye to Moro is like so heart-wrenching yeah that was oof. like again like that's how he grieves that is how he is able to express emotion mm -hmm. without compromising this version of himself he feels he needs to be to survive he drew himself with, crying yeah 
which is like a lot more than other kids would do. You know, especially kids that like cuss out their friends, you know, he made yeah. a public mural of himself crying. So I think that that's that honesty right there. I feel like you could write a whole paper about like just comparing Shine to Moses from Attack the Block. And they're yeah. both these sort of oh, like yeah. kids who just had this, this uh, these awful things happen to them and are, you know, the ones who have sort of stepped up and decided to harden themselves to protect everybody else but they're still just like such good sensitive kids inside just trying to deal with all this craziness yeah well we have social some social justice i don't know about racial social justice i think uh, the social justice in the class ties very very yeah. closely in on this one yeah it's sort of everywhere situation. yeah I, I feel like yeah. it's difficult to talk about just because it is so much an essential part of the movie. I mean, they are kids living on the the fringes of society. Yeah, and they're in a what we would consider a desperate situation, but they, there's still a certain amount of beauty depicted there. I think that has to do less of idealizing this the sort of urban exploration punk of the city and more of the kids doing the best with what they have. Because I know, like, we talk about things like cyberpunk, which r- usually shows these kind of high population areas with a lot of DIY, a lot of corrugated roof structures and things like that. But the situations, the kids don't seem terribly sad. I mean, they still have a flat screen TV. They've got what they would consider essential and they don't, yeah, they're hungry. I mean, they still have from Kako's place. They don't have that before, before they find it. Yeah. Yeah. I would assume that he had another one because the one that he was watching was shot. Like it was cracked. So yeah, it was there's right after the gun went that or I mean it seemed to be a bit of an implication that they just wait for people to be taken and then just like raid their houses once they know they won't be there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how, you know, they the group of them really meet Australia is is shined as stealing stuff from her house because he thinks she's gone yeah yeah this movie's kind of intense y'all yeah, there's a lot going on in this, this movie's movie. dealing with some heavy themes i think yeah yeah it's real it's real heavy this is been a month of heavy movies but yeah this, this one is definitely like real solid and yeah i i, I look forward to seeing more stuff from, from this director because isa lopez is supposedly working on a werewolf western movie right now Ooh. Give me that. I want yeah, that. Yeah, for real. Yeah. For real. Also, it seems she's working in True Detective Season 4, according oh. to news on March. Yeah, she, I guess, directed, I think, the first episode of, of Season 4, True Detective. But yeah, it's good for her. She deserves it. <laughs> it looks like, you know, at least at least her and Tina Guarta are doing pretty well after this movie, so... Hopefully they both got a lot more ahead of them. I, I guess that brings us to, I feel like we've already answered this, but guys, do you recommend people check this movie out? Oh, absolutely. A million percent. This is a very, very good movie. Like, definitely watch this. Tigers are not afraid. Good movie. Likes to do a title drop a little too much, but that's about my only criticism. But like the third title drop, I'm like, I get it. The name of the movie is Tigers Are Not Afraid. You, you, well, yeah, the you want to mention the original title? Uh, yes. In not sure why, but in Mexico it's called Vuelven. They come back. 
the, there's no mention about tigers in the title. That's so weird because tigers are a very big part of the movie. Yeah, and I love the title. That's crazy how often tigers are mentioned for them not to be in the title. Well, I think that. Oh, that just you just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I saw that when the movie opened, and I did look it up. And tigers are not I, afraid is a better title. <laughs> I mean, I like the title yeah. the title more, but the yeah, and it it has a different title in French too, which you know I, I think is much closer to the Spanish title. Yes. Then tigers are not afraid, but yeah, I mean, I think tigers not afraid is a real good name for this, but yeah. It's so weird because they, again, they say it like it's a title drop multiple times. Right. There's there's a weird thing about titles of movie being changed in Mexico. I'm not sure. It's like I watched the movie Antlers, the the horror movie. Mm -hmm. According, uh, I was searching for one of those weird examples. Here is called Espiritus Ocultos, Hidden Spirits. So... Huh. I don't know why. Does it still have a cover with a bunch of antlers on it? Yeah. Yes. It, there's a lot of examples about this kind of, it's too weird. Or, well, the Mexican public won't understand it. Change it. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's like, that reminds me of Hellraiser. And when we were watching that, how it's weirdly all dubbed over with American accents when they're clearly in England. It's very weird. I will never get over that. Yeah. Well, on that, from that front, I mean, obviously, we all recommend it. Do we have anything to recommend people to check out? Uh, Eugenia, did you have a recommendation? Yes. If you want to feel even more depressing about Mexico, I have, there is one movie called Miss Bala from 2011. It's about a woman who is interested about being a beauty pageant and what horrible night and how she gets in, immersed in the in a cartel. Supposedly, it's based on a inspired by a, a true story and just a little spoiler that showed you why you should never trust policemen <laughs> yes uh, yeah i have when i i saw the the children go to the police i was no i remember that movie can i that would be if you want to feel even more horror about mexico sounds like a good movie this yeah. movie is really good but it is depressing and yes. we're, we're all about recommending depressing movies. So. Oh, yes. On that front, Emily, what movie, what depressing movie would you like to recommend? I was just going to say Pan's Labyrinth. This is this movie. <laughs> this movie feels a lot like Pan's Labyrinth. It's very good and very depressing. Yes. And, you know, you have the fairy tale element. I This movie does not end the way that Pan's Labyrinth does. Although I think that in terms of like, the amount of depressing things happening, they kind of even out. So yeah, I I love this movie because it's kind of like Pan's Labyrinth, but I feel like it's a lot more relatable because of the fact that it's more contemporary. Whereas Pan's Labyrinth is a period piece, and there's a lot there's a lot more fantasy in Pan's Labyrinth, and I don't think I can really handle that amount of fantasy in anything that's about drug trafficking and human trafficking. I have to um, point out, they, they say they traffic drugs. We don't see drugs being trafficked at any point in this movie, just humans. Yeah, yeah. I think that there is a point where they mention that it was is explicitly human trafficking. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, the satanic virtuals where they say that they cut people let up and eat them, I think is a complete fabrication of these kids. But selling humans is not unheard of. Usually not, they're sold in one piece, but anyway. 
Yeah. Ben, what about you? What depressing movie would you like to recommend? I'm going to recommend a depressing TV show. Uh, I'm going to recommend The Wire, specifically Michael B. Jordan's storyline in season one. Oh. I'll watch anything with Michael B. Jordan in it, though. Yeah, who's ready for more depressing kids like trapped in a life they never should have been in and can't escape and then dying tragically i tried to get my wife to watch the wire with me and the first episode that she t- tuned in for was the one where michael p jordan gets killed and she was oh, like no. i don't want to see this show anymore i was like yeah. well, i can't yeah. really argue with that where wallace at string where wallace oh it's rough that's a, a very good show and that is a very hard episode oh yeah um yeah, I wanted to recommend checking out the work of a female Mexican director. I've watched a few of her movies now. Gigi Sal Guerrero. I don't love everything she does. She does love some real gory, messed up horror stuff. Some of which I'm into, some of which I'm not. But one that's really easy to find is if you have Hulu. She did one of the movies for the End of the Dark series. She did a movie called Culture Shock, which is pretty easy to find there. Which is about is a horror movie about immigration as if it weren't horrible enough already. And it's... It's a really weird psychological horror movie about sort of all the horrible things that we put people trying to escape violence and immigrate through and definitely worth checking out. But I think generally Gigi Sal Guerrero's catalog is worth checking out and, and seeing what she's up to because she's got a lot of she's she is a, a worker. She's got a lot of stuff under her belt. She's also an actress as well. So definitely check all that out. But the culture shock is the, I think, the easiest and quickest one to find. That said, I think that wraps us up for this. Uh, Eugenia, can you let people know where they can uh, find you online if they want to contact you? If you want to contact me and see all my questions in other podcasts, it's at, at Asimov underscore fangirl. Asimov underscore fangirl. And that's, that's, that's where we met you on, on Twitter. Um, yes. Yeah. As for the rest of us, uh, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con. Their website is Ben Con Comics, where you can pick up all of their all of their graphic novels. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 and on my website at jeremywhitley.com, where you can find out more about everything I write. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod, where we would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, if you are enjoying this podcast, we would love it if you could go on whatever you're listening to it on and go give us a review. Five stars is great. Ten stars, if it'll let you give that as many stars as you can get. Really, it uh, helps us helps more people find our podcast when we're we're highly ranked and reviewed like that. So we would really appreciate it. Um, thirty-two stars. Thirty-two stars. As many stars as you can possibly get. Again, Eugenia, thank you so much for joining us. This was uh, I wouldn't say the movie was fun, but it was fun talking about it with you. It was awesome talking about thank it. With you. Thank you. Yes, thank not you so a fun movie, but an excellent movie. Yes, actually, I have to thank you. I know really about watching horror movies, but your podcast inspired me to watch more. Also, when I'm at work, I can concentrate better. So uh, <laughs> at least I'm not being pursued by pinhead or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> we have Absolutely. such sites to show you. <laughs> I gotta say, sometimes filing invoices feels like putting together the lament configuration, but no pinhead yet. Yeah, I I am the cinnamon butt of Cinnabites, and I'll make sure Which, that none of them else come. Holy shit, y'all. Am I excited for when we get to cover the new Hellraiser movie with trans pinhead? Yes, I'm excited 
I hope. Oh, Emily, did you not know that they are remaking Hellraiser with a trans woman playing Pinhead? No. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, stay tuned for that, y'all. Yeah. I know there's no way we can't cover that. Yeah. And then next week, we'll be talking about the platform. So another very depressing movie. Come back for and enjoy that. And uh, thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by Alicia Whitley. This episode featured the Horror Squad, Jeremy, Ben, and Emily, and special guest Eugenia Benson. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. If you like this episode, you can support us on Patreon. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.